All right, folks, welcome back to another uh, weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. Mark, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Michael. Happy Friday. Happy Bitcoin Friday. And, Happy Bitcoin uh, looking Friday. Forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. I'm, so this is a different background for me. I'm actually visiting a friend of mine in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I'm going to a Billy Joel concert out here. Um, so uh, big plans this awesome. weekend. Uh, it was a little bit of a last minute move, but I'm being hosted uh, very nicely. I, it was one of those funny stories. Like I'm flying on the plane and I'm like kind of talking to the sky and I was like, so what brings you out to Ohio? Uh, and he's like, oh, I'm going to this, I'm surprising my friend, I'm going to a Billy Joel concert out here. I was like, me too. <laughs> so uh, funny little coincidence there. But uh, Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> right? Like, what are the odds? Um, love it. Well, love it. And love, love, seeing, love and seeing next-gen fans of, of Billy Joel. Big since fan. I grew up with, with Billy Joel. So. You know, you, you kind of, my dad played two artists growing up. He played Billy Joel and the Beatles. And you know how you kind of end up loving the music that your parents play? It's it's just stuck with me. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. One day we'll do karaoke together, Mark. Uh, awesome. I, 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 we'll, we'll get some we'll get some Billy Joel going. Um, oh, that- oh, I love karaoke. I, I and I have done it at the supreme level in to, in uh, Seoul. So uh-huh. I'm ready anytime. <laughs> no. Well, one day I'll subject you to me singing every word to "We Didn't Start the Fire," uh, and then you'll be like, uh, "Maybe maybe that's too much." <laughs> um, that being said, let's just get right into it here with uh, with this week's chart. So awesome. I thought this one was was pretty interesting, actually. So we're looking at real assets versus financial assets going all the way back to uh, 1925. And I think the way to look at this this chart is just, you know, as the blue line is kind of ticking up, that's when financial as- uh, assets look very expensive in comparison um, to real assets. Sorry, it's the exact opposite. It's, uh, it's when the, the blue line is ticking down. So basically, uh, you know, we're at this kind of record time when the price yeah. of financial assets is extremely, extremely expensive when it comes to uh, the price of real financial assets. So that's or real assets. That's like commodities, real estate, collectibles, et cetera. What do you what do you make of this chart, Mark? Uh, it's the ultimate condemnation of the fiat fiasco policies mm-hmm. that we've been following since 1913. Look, the Fed was created to to achieve exactly this to destroy the value of the dollar and siphon all of the wealth up to the top of the pyramid. That's why we have the greatest wealth and income inequality in the history of mankind right now. And this this shows why, right? Paper, right, which, which really is an interesting asset because it's not really an asset per se. And, and as we'll talk about later, it, it can be wiped out uh, with one stroke of, of a policy move in terms of the value of those those paper stock certificates, uh, or claims like bonds, but this is very troubling to me. In that, you know, we 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 live in a time of money illusion. Mm. Right? We all think things are going well, but it's because we denominate everything in this depreciating asset, the the U.S. dollar. And you know, this is this is a sad tale, I think, of of a country that's kind of lost its way in terms of global financial leadership. Yeah. Um, we're going to get into this later uh, as well, uh, talking about China. Uh, but, uh, you know, we had uh, Bill Blaine uh, of Shard Capital on the podcast this week, and he kind of talked about how the price of financial assets does tend to bleed into the real economy. So there was that story kind of earlier this year, BlackRock buying up uh, residential housing in the U.S., right? And that's kind of an interesting way of how the financial economy and the real economy connect, right? Because people actually have need to live in homes, right? They serve a very real purpose. Uh, but you've got these huge asset managers that are just looking at them as a as something to own, right? Uh, with a risk return profile. So 
that there is this kind of bleed over from, you know, rising uh, financial asset prices into the real economy. And that's like one way to look at some of the inflation that we're seeing, I think, right now as well. Yep. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, this one uh, is pretty wild. This has been getting passed around on Twitter a little bit. So we're looking at the percentage of U.S. high yield debt uh, with negative real yields. Uh, we are sitting at just under 90% of um, the high yield debt market is basically uh, you're, you're earning negative real yields on. Uh, what do you think about this? This is a pretty historically crazy chart. Um, anything jump out? Again, it's it's another indictment of of just the crazy monetary policies that we've been following. Mm -hmm. And this this is theft, right? You know, uh, capitalism doesn't work with negative interest rates. And you know, these are negative real rates, so this is interest rates relative to inflation. Um, but we actually have negative interest rates all over the world, Europe, Japan, where you know you have to pay to have your money held by a bank, or you have to pay to loan money to people. That is absolutely insane, and it it is just a, a complete indictment of failed policies, failed government policies, and and it's kleptocracy, right? This is simply theft from the masses to the few. And it it makes my blood boil uh to to think about it and to see it. And and then and then you have this thing that uh we perpetuate it by the big mutual fund companies have lobbied uh and paid big money to get the rules set that all of the minions, all of the masses, are forced because they have no other choice but to invest their retirement savings into these assets. And the passive indices have to buy these assets irregardless of this stupid price chart. No one would buy this, right? There's not anyone, if you thought about it, would buy this asset. But they don't think. They're not yeah. allowed to think. They're dumb, and I mean rule-based, but they're dumb idiotic in that nobody does anything about it. And, and it's, it's literally like the emperor has no clothes. We yeah. need a child or maybe someone acts like a child like me to finally say, guys, the emperor has no clothes. Mm -hmm. This is bad. And, you know, I, I just uh, it just tells me I need to get more money into digital assets. Well, what do you think about this kind of idea, right? There's this idea of low interest rates pushing investors out along the risk curve. And when I look at this chart, one of the first things that I think about is just pensions and how they're going to fund themselves. Uh, because, I mean, do you kind of subscribe to this idea that, okay, we've got super, super low rates on the 10-year, so investors that were kind of uh, earning that, you know, quote-unquote risk-free rate, they're like, yeah, this isn't going to cut it anymore. So then they kind of move out. Um, and then sort of the next uh, place that you would move out to is the high-yield bond market. But now you're looking at the high yield bond market. It's like, wow, I'll, I'm not getting any real yields here either, right? Because inflation is is above the the nominal rate, uh, the interest rate that I'm getting. So then theoretically, they would move further into equities, right? Am, am I am I kind of reading that the right way? Do you agree with that whole framework of just uh, low interest rates pushing investors out on the curve? No, again, it, it's the plan. It, it's called financial repression. Again, repression is is a, a an evil term. But that's exactly what it is. This is, an in, this is an intentional plan to, as you say, push investors out on the risk curve. 
And again, that's insane. Investing is about taking intelligent risks, risks that you are compensated for. If you're not compensated for taking risk, you shouldn't take risk. But now we have this thing where, well, if I'm not compensated for taking risk in, in treasuries, then I'll take risk in, in high yield or, or corporate debt. Oh, if I'm not take, compensated for taking risk there, I'll, I'll take it in equity. Well, the equity risk premiums are tiny. So then what do I do? Well, then I'll lever up. And then what we see is people get in big trouble. And I, look, I, it, it's, it's, it's sad, and, and I wish I had a, a better solution for it. Um, but the solution is, is, a, is a big reset. And that reset has to happen. And, and we have to um, you know, depress the, the prices of these, these crazily valued assets. And that's going to be painful for people. But, but look, the government, um, in their infinite or lack thereof infinite wisdom, has this problem, right? You have all these people, you know, the, the middle class and, and the lower classes, that basically have no savings, Right? They literally have basically nothing. Um, so they have a little bit of equity in their house, maybe if they own a house, but a lot of them now don't own a house. Uh, they have very little, you know, sub, I think average is like $44,000 in, in their 401k. Uh, and so they, they can't, quote unquote, retire, right? That dream of working for 50 years and then retiring into the sunset and sit on the porch with your wife or husband or whatever, significant other, and... Uh, spend time together, can't do it. You know, could be a greeter at Walmart until you're 95. And this is a really tough thing because the only chance you have is to inflate the value of those financial assets back to the last chart. And you're doing that now through illusion, through money illusion. You just weaken the currency and you make people feel wealthy even though right, your stock, your, your 401k value goes up but then you go to a restaurant and you pay $30 for a hamburger. What? Right? You're, you're less well-off. And remember, the people at the top are growing richer at a faster rate. And those on fixed income are getting absolutely annihilated. I mean, it's, it's very, very sad. I mean, like cat food sad. Um, crazy stuff. It is. It is. It's a disturbing chart uh, for sure. Um, Actually, this one, uh, you know, moving along here is, I, I think, pretty interesting as well. So this is a an aggregation of the the G three credit impulse, and and we're tracking this over the Bloomberg Commodity Index. So basically, the idea is that um, the credit impulse, which is essentially an economy's willingness to spend and engage in economic activity, uh, tends to lead commodity prices by twelve months. So basically, the the idea here is that if this pattern holds. Um, there's been a huge uh, drop uh, in the credit impulse. And basically the question is, um, are commodities going to follow? And, you know, to echo something that Raul Paul says over at Real Vision uh, Bunch uh, is the cure for high prices is high prices. Right? It's high prices. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Exactly, right. And uh, the cure for low prices, low prices. But uh, at, at, look, I wrestled in high school and, uh, you know, I, I talk about this not, not all the time, but I, I say it occasionally. Uh, what my coach used to say, uh, two things. If you can talk, you can breathe. So when people say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Look, if you can talk, you can breathe. So shut up and get back to wrestling. <laughs> um, but the more important one is where the head goes, the body follows. Mm. So the head has gone down. 
And look, this is this China started this uh, about a year ago. So look, China is the one that saved the world in 2008 and nine. They're the ones that say it wasn't Greenspan or I mean, uh, Bernanke. It was it was China. They printed four trillion dollars, trillion four. And then in, again, in 2015, 16, you know, they bailed out the commodity markets again. I actually remember the day I was on on CNBC and oil hit you know, 26 bucks. And, and everybody said, what's going to happen? I'm like, well, the Chinese are going to start buying oil. And sure enough, I mean, they started buying lots and lots of oil futures. And uh, now here again, um, during COVID, China punched a uh, trillion dollars plus of credit impulse into the system. And, and you can see it. Uh, but that's gone, right? They have pulled it back. Uh, other countries have followed. Economic growth is faltering. Uh, fiscal stimulus plans are, are getting reined in. Monetary stimulus, they're talking about tapering, which they'll never do, but they're talking about it, which means they're not going to increase monetary. This is a very disturbing chart if, if you're an investor uh, because this means that, that everything's going down from commodity prices to housing prices to stock prices. Um, this is going to be a very painful, painful drawdown. Absolutely. And, you know, it does feel like that... Um that is inevitably coming, right? A, a tree can't grow to the sky forever. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to do this right now, but uh, for those investors that kind of look at um, Bitcoin and crypto and say, hey, this, this is clearly a bubble. Just look at this chart. Just pull up a, a chart of the NASDAQ over the last 10 years uh, and tell me what that looks like, because uh, it's pretty incredible um, to just to just check out. Um, OK, Mark, this is where uh, I'm not sure. Have you been following this whole Evergrande um, story over in China. Oh, yeah, we 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 were past tense short uh, Evergrande. Uh, we covered because we don't think they're going to let it go to zero. Although we were talking with uh, a Chinese manager the other day. Uh, and just just for background, look, we, we've been China files for a long time. I mean, I've been investing in China since 1993. I've been going to China, uh, although I haven't been there now for 18 months, but I've been going to China every year for, you know, 20 plus years. And you know, it was in three phases, right? From kind of 95 to 05, there was this phase where, you know, we'd give them our money and we'd get to invest in some really cool companies like Cherry Automotive, but the local municipal tax always equaled our profits. So we never made any money, right? They didn't steal our money, but, but we could never make any money. Then we had a period from 05 to 15 that was just glorious because we partnered with the sons and daughters of the, you know, Politburo. And uh, one of my favorites is this guy who, who runs a firm called New Horizon. His dad was Wen Jiebo. It turns out when you need a permit to get, uh, to create the largest pork producer, magically that permit appears. And uh, we did invest in this company, um, WH Group, which now owns Smithfield Foods here in North Carolina, which is kind of funny, um, are the largest pork producer in the world. We made tons of money. So love that period. Since 2015, there's been a new period where those big, you know, firms owned by the princelings have gotten too big. All the big pension funds in the U.S. gave them billions of dollars and their returns have, have gone down. Now it's all about innovation around healthcare, technology, and, and retail as they migrate from a, uh, you know, manufacturing economy to a consumer economy. And, you know, 20 years ago, it was all about made in China. We outsourced everything. We outsourced jobs. We outsourced pollution. We just sent everything to China. And in exchange, we got cheap goods. Well, now, 
750 million people have been pulled out of abject poverty in China, and they want our life, right? They want to be middle class. So they're going to be consumers. They're going to have the greatest consumer economy the world has ever seen over the next 30 years. And now it's about made for China. So this whole trade war 2.0 is just stupid, right? They are, we are fighting a war as if it's 1930, and it's not. Right? It's 2021 and about to be 2030, and it's we should be focusing on making stuff to sell to this massive consumer market. Now, this chart has to do with uh, the, the bubbles that, that the Chinese government likes to create historically uh, to enrich a certain number of people. So they have 80,000 people in the party, uh, senators. Uh, they have a lot of senators, and those people get— grants of land, and then they sell the land uh, in auctions, and they make a bunch of money, and then they develop on the land. And, and it was actually a really good system for making a reasonable-sized number of people really, really, really rich. Problem is, once people get a little rich, they want to be more rich. And so they do more, and they take out bigger loans, and they get themselves into a massive bubble. And one of the things you see on this, this chart is that, that impulse that we talked about, right? Every time China has a problem, they have the ability to massively increase the amount of credit. You can see it back in, in 2009 uh, around the global financial crisis, and you can see another one uh, around there in, in 2000, what was that, 2010, um, and then in, again in, in 15, and then the one in, in 20. Um, and the problem is then they have to reverse it because if you have unlimited money printing, what happens to your currency? It gets destroyed. Well, strong nations actually want strong currencies. So what's been one of the strongest currencies over the past decade? It's actually the renminbi. Wait a minute. They're currency manipulators. They're, they're weakening their currency. No, actually, they're not. They're strengthening their currency. And we're the ones weakening. We're the currency manipulators. Usually when somebody in government screams at somebody else, they're something. That's what they are. Right, right. When you point a finger, you got three pointing back at you. The whole thing. That's from a song, right? Um, yeah, it's called projecting uh, in psychological terms too. It's uh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is is pretty fascinating. I'm not sure uh, if you if you know enough about the, what's going on in Evergreen. Can you can you give us like a summary there? Because Tyler and I have talked about this in the past. I keep hearing about it. I haven't dug super deep in, um, but it looks like it definitely looks like there's some problems brewing there. So is it just like uh, they're, they're a developer that kind of got over their skis? Is there something more to pay attention to there? Or what's your, what's your no, kind no, of take? No, no, no. I mean, well, I mean, there's lots to pay attention to. And, and the reality is that, you know, this is one of, you know, there's probably four or five really key developers. And, and again, they're populated at the top by, you know, friends of the party. And, and they had a great run. And they did get out over their skis. And they kind of uh, I don't know. They, it's not that they defied the the higher ups, but they just they kind of got too rich. And there's there is an interesting thing. You know, she is is many things as a leader, but the one thing he is 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 consistent. And once he decides on something, ooh, he executes. So he <laughs> execute is probably the right word. Um, <laughs> he has decided that uh, certain people uh, were too bad right they were abusing the system and that was his first wave of of you know clearing people out like uh bin i can't remember that guy's name the first one that that basically got arrested like the day that she got inaugurated and uh 
And over the years, he's he's kind of cracked down on corruption. You saw the whole thing with Macau and and the money laundering. And now these guys, and they're all guys, they're all old guys, uh, who thought they were pretty safe in these real estate developers, are now squarely in the crosshairs. And you can see they're they're reducing the amount of of leverage. And Evergrande in particular just got way over levered. I mean, just beyond. You know, it's almost almost like what happened to those those poor traders we talked about last week um, on Binance, right? You, know, you lever up crypto at 100x, and you're shocked that you lose your crypto, right? You're investing in an 80 vol asset with 100 times leverage. You're an idiot. You know, don't tell me they stole your money. You lost it because you're stupid. Um, now there is another view that someone said, well, what if what if the company making the loans? is is really evil that they want you to take the big loan so they can seize the property that could be part of the story here but as i said we were talking to this this chinese manager who we worked with for a long time has the best track record in china of, of maybe anyone except hill house and uh and even compared to hill house on the on the public side he's probably better um and he said that the equity's done right that that they are going to wipe out the equity uh they're going to restructure the debt the company's not going to go away. Properties aren't going to go away. The houses aren't going to go away. They're not going to kick people out of their homes. But uh, he he did say that this is, is going to be ugly for the equity holders. So we probably should have stayed short. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um This is pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of things to short right now, <laughs> Plenty, uh, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, so, so this one's pretty interesting. I don't really have uh, much of a take here, but I just think it is kind of interesting to look at it visualized. So... The One Belt, One Road initiative is China's kind of massive infrastructure play. And this is basically giving you kind of an idea of what um, parts of the infrastructure China is investing in and where they're investing it. Um, it's a huge, a huge, huge play. And I guess uh, to connect it to, to something else that I've kind of heard as well is basically this idea that China is kind of this is their kind of way of going almost long commodities and investing in real, uh, real assets and kind of um, in the same yeah. way that uh, the U.S., you ever read that book confessions of an economic hitman basically the way we found a way to get the entire world in debt to us this is china's yeah, play yeah, yeah. at that um so i'm not sure amen if, look yeah that is that is exactly the right the right answer michael um look what what you have here is i refer to it as as hashtag china playing go so the rest of the world is arguing about how you set up the checkerboard Right. Oh, this and that and this tariff and that tariff and this policy against China. And, and we're going to we're going to have a meeting in Congress and we're going to say China are bad people. They're, we're going to label them currency manipulators. You guys are playing the wrong game. They're they're playing go and go is way harder than than checkers or chess. And, you know, they tell Putin's a grandmaster. And yeah, great. These guys are playing a way harder game and they're playing it way better. And they just think long term. And, and what I love about this chart is it goes back to China for 1800 of the last 2000 years was the center of the universe. Just let that sit for a second. Okay. 1800 of 2000 years, China was the center of the universe. And the right hand side of, of that chart was the nexus of the world. Now, in the middle of, of the left hand side of that chart, Greece Right? There's a point in Greece that's called the navel of the world. Right, It's literally, I guess, the geographic center of the world. 
Now, what did China just buy up over the last three years? A whole bunch of ports and land and islands in Greece. How did they do that? To your point, they lent them money to bail them out, okay, because they, they can do that. And then they take the assets when you can't pay them back because Greece could never pay their debt back, not, not even close. It's a wonderful place to go vacation, to go hang out. But as far as, you know, well-run country, good management, not so much. Uh, and it was intentionally destroyed by the Germans. This is a whole other story. You know, the Germans cooked up this idea for the euro uh, not to make the euro strong, but to make the euro weak because they are the greatest mercantilists in the world. We think of China as being mercantilists, meaning making stuff and send it to the rest of the world. What does Germany do? They sell cars and machine tools to the rest of the world. How do you do that? You have to have a weak currency. So what you do is you invite all the crappy countries into your currency block, which weakens your currency. So the euro has had this, this weakening path so that you can sell cheap goods to the world. And if you go to China, most of the cars aren't Chinese cars. They're German cars. Volkswagen, number one. So what's genius about this is the nexus of the world shifted uh, 200 years ago from China to Europe. And Europe had a pretty good run. UK was, this, you know, was the dominant superpower, uh, about a 70-year run. And now, for the last 70-odd years, it's been squarely in the United States. And uh, you know, we were an emerging market from 1776 to about you know, 1910. And since then, you know, we've, we've had a pretty good run. And now the nexus is moving back to Asia. And Southeast Asia is pulling it with a gravitational force. And this idea, this Belt and Road Initiative, you know, they used to call it One Belt, One Road. And we actually tried to get the OBOR ticker to do an ETF on this. And then they changed it. Not like, well, now what do I do with OBOR? So now you call it BARI, B-A-R-I. And this Belt and Road Initiative is so important because it does everything that you would want to do if you had grand plans for being the dominant world superpower again. You would establish trade routes and physical routes like roads and ports and bridges and train tracks and, and everything to the biggest markets, right? You'll get Europe as a market and Africa. There's this great cover story of The Economist a number of years ago, and it was Africa draped in a Chinese flag. Like they had gone in and they'd bought up all the resources and loaned everybody money with this grand plan that when you can't pay us back, we will seize the assets and we will own most of Africa. So this is intentional. It is genius from a long-term planning perspective because you're finding the uh, you're founding the trading partners that you're going to need as you lift your poor into the middle class and turn them into consumers, they're going to want to buy German cars and they're going to want to, they're going to need raw materials from Africa and they're going to need, you know, uh, all the fancy things that you can get, you know, Swiss chocolates and, and all that good stuff. And, and it's, it is going to reestablish China and, and other Southeast Asian countries as the nexus of the world for the next century. Yeah, absolutely. I am, um... You know, it's really funny. I, I want to move on to make sure we have enough time for our stories. But you anticipated this great, uh, this great point. Um, 
I actually heard James Aitken. I don't know if you know him. Uh, he made this point oh, on yeah? uh, Dimitri's podcast, which is exactly what you just said, uh, which was essentially Germany was trying to punish uh, Greece, right, during that restructuring. And their economy has never really fully recovered uh, because of it. Um, so a lot of questions. About oh, absolutely. And, and look, and it's not that it's dire, like it's going to fall into the ocean. Um, people still go there on vacation. I have a good friend who just spent two weeks there and, and loved every minute of it. And he said, he said, these guys know how to do vacation. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what they're really good at. They do. Um, they really do. Although, although it's funny. I went to, um, oh, shoot, the big crater island. Uh, uh, Santorini. Sardinia. Uh, Santorini. Uh, oh, yeah, my gosh. Yeah. Santorini. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And first day, oh, my gosh, I never want to leave. Second day. Uh, this is really awesome. This is by the fourth day. I'm like, geez, I'm bored. I mean, staring at the beautiful water and eating unbelievable food and and looking at Oya over on the other side or however you pronounce it, Oya. Um, it's awesome. And taking that little hike along the ridge. But by the fourth day, I'd done it and I was ready to go. Yeah, you got to do a little bit of island hopping. You got to get to like uh, Mykonos if you want to do your you know party party. Yeah, <laughs> different vibes. Well, you can going. go to Mykonos. I'm old. You you can go to Mykonos. Mark, age is a number. With... I feel like you could do it at Mykonos. One one day we'll go. Uh, we'll do some. All right, all right. Billy I, Joel, I, I, uh... You know, what? I will take you up on that. I'll hit that bid. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, all right, let's get to this first story here, which is um, you know Coinbase uh, threat or sorry the SEC threatening to sue Coinbase over its lend product um so basically you know a whole series of events here um and i think there are pretty broad implications for just how lend uh, because yield and and lend is a big uh product and focus in crypto in general so there's been a question of how the sec is going to regulate it and this doesn't uh, maybe bode super well but the whole the series of events is that coinbase announced that it's going to launch a lend product very similar to kind of blockfi's uh product right so you get something like four percent on whatever you deposit um you know the sec kind of comes out and says hey if you guys move forward with launching this product, we are going to sue you. Uh, Coinbase then goes back to the SEC and says, could you give me legal ground or why are we being sued? SEC says no. Um, So so Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, posts a blog on Twitter. And now it's a lot of like back and forth. And generally, there are kind of two narratives forming. And this is what I want to get your opinion on. One is that this looks very much like a bond, right? Because what you're doing is you're pooling assets. There's a manager that's managing those uh, assets and kind of determining where to allocate them to get yield. Very, you know, in some ways it looks like an investment contract. On the other hand, you've got this narrative, which is like, look guys, this uh, actually looks almost more like a bank savings account, right? That's the Matt Levine take, which I really agree with. You haven't provided a framework. There should be a framework to do this. This isn't some illegal product that we're offering here. And you guys just haven't given us a path. So. Where do you kind of come down on this whole thing? What's your take on the whole situation? Uh, I have really strong opinions, and I have to probably be a little bit careful. Um, some may or may not know. I mean, we are uh, very significant investors in BlockFi. Mm-hmm. It's been one of our best investments that, that we've made um, and are incredibly supportive of, of Zach and Flory and the team and, and everything they're doing and building, and I just think they're, they're fantastic. We're also... Investors in Coinbase, uh, not as big, um, but but certainly uh, investors there, and we still do own the stock. So I uh, haven't sold, um, and don't want to sell here. Uh, also, uh, <laughs> uh, investing in Gemini, uh, which has uh, an earn product. So we're all in on on this product. And and to your point, I have very strong view. This is not a bond in any way, shape, or form, uh, and and trying to. 
make it look like one, you can look if you torture the data long enough, it will confess. You can make any you can make any case you want uh, by, you know, ignoring certain things or saying things that are kind of partly true. Fine. You can you can say, yeah, it kind of looks like a bond. Well, that kind of isn't how the, the law works. This is the equivalent of a bank deposit. Now, it's even the name, right? BlockFi, Blockchain Financial. What they're doing is, is a form of banking. They take deposits, they lend the deposits, and pay interest. That's what banks do. But the banks don't want to call it a bank, so you can't call it a bank. So, you know, Caitlin's Avanti isn't called a bank. I mean, actually, I think maybe they did. Maybe they did call it Avanti Bank. They might, um, yeah. And actually, I think I think yeah. they did. Yeah. So, but the banks get all up in arms when you when you call it a bank because, um, I don't know, they they don't want to lose their deposits. And so, my view on this is, uh, up to this point, and we talked about this last time. I think the SEC has been actually really good. Right? I think they've been measured. I think they've been prudent, and most importantly, I think they've been consistent. And that is not necessarily their modus operandi for all of their history. But in this case, around crypto, I think they've been those three things. Now, suddenly, they're being so inconsistent and so opaque. That's not how relationships work. That's not how processes work. And this, this idea of, of being totally um, capricious in saying, well, you— Coinbase, who was actually late to the party on this earn idea, that's wrong. But these other guys who are already there, well, but they're having discussions at the state level and, and others. So, you know, there's already people questioning whether this is a security or not. And so I, I have an opinion that, and this is not the opinion of, of the companies I invest in, but it's my opinion, that uh, this is actually um, propagated by the banks, right? The banks lobby really hard to whoever, and usually regulators. Remember, incumbents have used regulation as a weapon for centuries, right? That's what every incumbent does, right? They try to stop the disruptive innovation through regulatory hurdles first. You know, it's the old, uh, you know, first they ignore you, or first they laugh at you, then they ignore you. Or first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you. Okay, fighting is where they put up the regulatory hurdles, and in the end, you you do win because this is not a security. Now, I actually think there might be a path where, uh, just for I don't know what you call it, um, speed of execution's sake, some of these companies just say, you know what, fine, I'll register this product as a security. I don't actually love that necessarily because it sets precedent. On the other hand, I get it as as a as a as someone who's trying to, you know, manage a business and grow a business. If the regulator says this is the way it's got to be, okay, fine. Um but now are you going to then enforce that same action against all banks, right? Are all banks going to have to be broker-dealers to sell securities? Um, I guess the other way you could do it is, is maybe say, well, these companies just have to get banking licenses. 
maybe that would I don't know. Um but they're not they're not the same in that we don't view them as currencies, we view them as property. Right? Now, if you want to define it as as currency and you want to define it as money, um that's a whole nother kettle of fish that we can or can of worms that we can open up. So it's a complicated issue. Uh I have to tread a little bit lightly because, you know, I'm I'm involved and and uh and, and I don't want it to be harmful to, to anybody who's is in this process. Um I you know, someone asked me the other day, what do I think of, of Brian, you know, Twitter shaming the SEC? I said, well, Probably wouldn't have been my first choice. On the other hand, if you've tried everything else and they won't talk to you, they won't give you a straight answer. They won't give you – there's this thing called – have you ever heard the term nigisab? All right. Nigisab stands for now I got you, you son of a bitch. And, and the way it works is your significant other says, make me happy. And you go out and you take him to a nice meal. Like, it's not what I wanted. That doesn't make me happy. He's all right. Uh, so you take him to the movie. That's not what I wanted. Now I got you, you son of a bitch, right? I said, make me happy. And you didn't do what makes me happy. Well, no, tell me what you want and I'll do it. I mean, come on. So when you, when you give a generic goal with no steps to reach that goal, that's a niggy sob. And so I think the SEC is doing the biggest niggy sob of, of the last decade on businesses that are absolutely essential. I mean, let's go back to the charts we were looking at. The current system isn't working for the masses. It's just not, right? Devaluing the currency that's owned by the masses and that the masses use to live and so that their standard of living is going down, that ain't working. And so if I want to opt out with a portion of my wealth, deposit it where it can work, in the system, remember how capitalism works is positive interest rates. I deposit my assets, they lend them out, so they recycle them and use them, right, through, you know, fractional reserve banking, so to speak, which to me is one of the great inventions of our time, used appropriately with prudent limits on, on how many times you can rehypothecate. But ultimately, now we're in this situation where the incumbents, are saying, slow these guys down. Why? If the incumbents were doing their job, we wouldn't need this other stuff. And I, I will say about the whole Twitter thing, uh, the SEC, maybe this is just how communication happens in our time, because then the SEC trolled them, trolled uh, Coinbase right back with a video of uh, how Bond works. So maybe this is just 21st century communication. We all need to get used to it. Um, uh, yeah, amen. It, it is certainly possible look we had a a seated president who communicated by twitter until he got banned uh we we definitely have uh twitter fights between all kinds of <laughs> actors and I, I mean active but but all kinds of of economic actors in in the world so yeah i you're right it could be just the form of communication it is it is pretty effective because of the viral nature um and and given that that is the way many of us now consume our information, you know, it's, it's not a bad path. I will say on this as well, I think there's not too much that's certain in crypto. But one thing that I do think is certain 
is that regulation is good, but the market thinks that it's bad and it is going to give us one huge buying opportunity at some point. Everyone is going to freak out about something that looks bad, but it's actually good. And I think this is it. So I know you've, you know, are an investor in Coinbase. It's such a good point. If I could be, I would be buying BlockFi with both hands right now. They are good. They are a smart management team. They're going to figure out a way around Amen. this. They're not going to make this product illegal. I, I mean, if I had the ability to do it, I would be buying with both hands. So yeah, yeah. well, we, we we might be able to help you with that. So <laughs> right. um, look, no, seriously, I, I look it. It you're you're exactly right. Uh, what these companies are doing is good. Full stop. That, that's good. how I view too. Allowing people to use their assets, right, that they've earned and, and, and gotten, you know, perfectly legally and, 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 and in every way is, is positive, to allow them to make them work better. It's like the whole pre- premise of DeFi, right. right? If I can lend peer-to-peer cheaper, more efficiently, more effectively, how is that a bad thing? Yeah. It's not. It's all good. But the, and to your point, regulation is good. Ground rule. Think about raising a child, mm-hmm. right? Children want you to set boundaries. They don't want you to say, oh, do whatever you want. Just do whatever you want. They want boundaries. They want guidelines. They want rules. And the thing about regulation, and this, though, I, I say, I think we might have even talked about this last time. Jay Clayton, right? A lot of things that he did I didn't agree with in terms of not approving an ETF and all this stuff. But the one thing he said that I thought was really powerful, he said, look, our system of regulation has created a financial system that is the envy of the world. Yep, it's true. And trillions and trillions, multiple tens of trillions of dollars of wealth. Yep. So within that framework, we don't have to blow it up. All we have to do is operate within it, but we do need consistency from the regulars, and we need them to be free from bias created by money being paid to them by the incumbents. That, that, that's important. Howdy, everyone. If you're a long-term investor in Ethereum, then listen up because I am talking directly to you here. If you've been listening to the show for the last two months, then you know that I'm a big, big fan of ETH and the entire world of DeFi that's being built on top of it. It's honestly just super, super interesting, but it's also probably the single greatest wealth creation opportunity that I am ever going to see in my entire life. And the best thing about ETH is that you can hold it, but with this new upgrade to 2.0, you can also stake it and earn yield that way. The only problem is under the current set of rules, unless you have 32 ETH or at today's price is almost $100,000, then you can't stake it. Until now. Our good friends over at Matrixport just unrolled a solution which allows investors with as few as 5 ETH to start staking today. At the time of this recording, you can earn up to 9% APY, although that's going to vary based on the protocol. So stop what you're doing. Stop listening to me. Go click the link at the bottom of this episode. If it's on YouTube or Spotify or Apple or whatever it is, click that link, go over to the website and tell them that I sent you. All right. Give me a little credit, but definitely go click the link. Start learning about how you can stake your ETH and earn yield or other yield generation opportunities. But I do want to get your opinion on um, this story about George Soros. So uh, George Soros kind of came out and called BlackRock's China investment a tragic mistake. And let me give you kind of a series of events here because there's been a, a couple of op-eds that he's wrote and actually the Chinese state media has responded. So on August 30th, yeah. uh, Soros wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times 
uh, where he basically kind of was looking at uh, some of the regulatory crackdowns that China has been having and saying, this is not really great for investors um, and Ant Financial is a particularly bad one. Uh, the Chinese state media responded and called George Soros a global financial terrorist. Uh, George Soros waited a couple of days, responded with the most recent op-ed uh, in the Wall Street Journal. And if you read it, it's pretty interesting. He talks about BlackRock and their uh, kind of the mutual fund play that they're making over there. And, and he basically had two different styles of arguments. One of the layers of argument was uh, the policies that China is undertaking right now are to redistribute wealth to the middle class. That's not going to be good for shareholders. So he kind of had this like, look, it doesn't make sense on an investment scale. Personally, I think that's really interesting that that's what their stated objective is. We could use some of that over here. But that's but that's his observation. And then he, you know, he uh, really kind of put a, um, you know, we're almost like ideologically very opposed. So this is the quote today. The U.S. and China are engaged in a life and death conflict between two systems of governments, repressive and democratic. Right. So there's the investment standpoint and then there's the ideological uh, battle or ramming up against each other. Um, so what's your kind of take on this whole situation here? Um, I have a lot of views on this. So. So one is, I have nothing but admiration and respect for George Soros. I mean, he is a brilliant investor. Um, he has a incredible track record of of, of genuine uh, insight on on investing uh, for many decades. So from that perspective. Uh, wouldn't want to go toe to toe with George on on investing. Um, you know, with some of his other stuff, I probably have less admiration, um, just because you know he, he, we're all entitled to different views about about different things. And 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 again, I don't I don't really want to be on the record disagreeing with him, but I but I actually do, in that I actually agree with him wholeheartedly that we are locked in a struggle. But I don't think it's between democracy and repression. The idea that 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 we're some lily white democracy and that we're not doing financial repression on our own citizens, that we're not extending the wealth divide, that we're not stealing wealth from the middle class and the poor and siphoning it up to the rich. That's just crazy. I mean, I, I can show you lots of examples of policies that our government. I mean, look, look at this whole nonsense about vaccine mandates. And I mean, that is not. Uh, democratic, right? I, I saw a great line, and, and I don't remember who said it. it said, you know, uh, the current administration is is all about my body, my choice. Well, except when it comes to putting chemicals that have never been tested in your body, then then it's not your choice. Like, oh, that's that, that's a really interesting perspective. You can't you can't have it both ways, right? You can't talk one you know ideal in Texas and another ideal in in DC. So. Um, and again, that's not a political statement. That's just an observation that I thought was really interesting. So, look, we have been engaged in Cold War 2.0 for a while. And I believe the reason we've engaged in Cold War 2.0 uh, and we started it, right? People say, oh, China started. No, well, we, we started it. And we started it because they were ascendant and they have a plan, right? It's like they, they think in 30-year plans. They think in 100-year plans. And they had a plan for the renminbi to become a world reserve currency. Not the, but a world reserve currency. And we're like, no, we're the world reserve currency. Well, we didn't say we wanted to be the. We said we want to be a. So they did that, right? They achieved that with the, the SDR inclusion. 
And we want to be part of WTO. They did that. We want to be the world's manufacturing powerhouse, and they were for 20 years. And did they do lots of things that, that you know, I don't condone in terms of stealing intellectual property? And, and absolutely, right? They found, you know, copies of Cisco routers with the bugs in them, right? So, yeah, Huawei, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, sure, they did all kinds of bad stuff. Today, accusing Huawei of stealing? I think Huawei actually has more citations for patents on new technology and AI and 5G than we do. So who's stealing from who? Um, and so, again, we're fighting the wrong war, uh, and they are executing at a better clip. So if you look around the world, more countries are choosing you know, Huawei 5G than, than the U.S., quote unquote. Standard. Also trade partners. There's a great chart circulating out there. Maybe we'll do it on the roundup yeah. next week, but you can look at uh, it's in the year 2000, uh, who the dominant trade partner was. And it's like the United States for the entire world. And if you look now, it's literally only for North America. We're more dominant trade partners everywhere else in the world. The most dominant trade partner is China. It's an incredible uh, Of chart. course. Again, we went back to the, B the Belt and Road Initiative. Exactly, Michael. I mean, look, China has a plan. And, and, and yeah, does their plan include things that we don't really understand because we do have a different form of government? Yes. You know, we have this representative democracy, although it isn't exactly representative because, remember, they don't have to vote the way the masses vote. And we got these electors and then they can be changed. And so it's, it's pretty close to representative government. And, and they do have a centralized authority. But when you have 1.4 billion people, more than half of them living in abject poverty, you can't have a pure democracy, right? You had to have a plan to get to a more democratic society. Now, right, what they're doing right now is they are taking, so first they built up the rich and they brought the poor along with them, right? So they pulled the poor out of abject poverty, but the rich got really, really rich and they were doing some stuff that, you know, Arguably, they didn't like, you know, Ant Financial, right? Why did Ant Financial? Ant Financial happened for the same reason that we were just talking about Coinbase is happening, okay? Ant Financial created a money market account that siphoned $90 billion out of the banks. Well, the banks can't afford to have $90 billion siphoned out because they're too highly levered. So they shut it down. And look, there's this great story about uh, Putin saying to the oligarchs in Russia years ago, here's the deal. Bring back the money. Put it in the state-owned bank, spare bank. No questions, no taxes, no jail time. Only thing you have to do is not run for politics. Okay? Most of the oligarchs said, awesome, awesome. They brought back $300 million. They recapitalized the banking system. Spare bank's been a great investment. Russia's had this ascendant. There was one guy, Kordakovsky, he's like, nope, I'm running for office. Where's Kordakovsky? In jail. <laughs> I was going to guess that. There's one rule. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's one rule. Yeah, all you do is not run for office. But okay. So kind of China said the same thing now to Jack Ma, right? One rule. Don't siphon money out of the banks. Nope. I'm going to take Ant Financial Public. We're going to make this thing the biggest money market account in the world. No, you're not. We're going to shut you down. Now, do I agree with that per se? No, I'm, a, I'm an open market capitalist. I think the capitalist system should should work. Problem is, in the United States, we don't have capitalism anymore. We have cronyism. And in China, you got cronyism. So 
the more you move towards capitalism, and I would argue that they are moving more towards it, but the one thing, and I, I'm torn on this because I love the construct of now they're taxing the super wealthy, successful companies like Tencent and, and Alibaba, and they're going to create a fund to redistribute to the poor and middle class. And I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, it's the same thing we do, right? We tax people. Well, we don't do the same way. We don't tax the really rich companies because they pay the lobbyists to get them exempted from taxes. So the rest of us high-income earners pay the taxes, and then we redistribute it out in free handouts to people. I'm not sure that's any different than what China's doing. So this idea of, of democratic versus repressive, I just don't agree with. And this idea that the CCP is the devil, I don't agree with. What they did with the education companies, I don't like it. I particularly don't like the fact that why would you destroy the equity of companies? Well, let's think about this. Who owned the equity of those companies? Mutual funds, hedge funds, individuals in the United States. Did any of the Chinese venture capitalists own them? Nope, they got out a long time ago. So maybe that was a retaliation for the tariffs and the Cold War 2.0 rhetoric. And so maybe we're just in this hot war. Maybe it's gone from a cold war to a hot war. And so back to the question on BlackRock. BlackRock doesn't care about anything but making money. And that's a strong statement and probably get in trouble for saying it. But look, they are the ones that created the whole 401k system. You know, not BlackRock per se, but the mutual fund industry, right? The mutual fund industry created the 401k so that they could all get rich while the average person has no savings, okay? Bad. Defined benefit was a way better plan than defined contribution. Way better for retirees. Defined contribution is, is good for mutual fund companies. Then they tried to pass, BlackRock tried to pass the, remember the fiduciary law that they were going to try to pass a couple years ago that Mooch thankfully blocked? right? In his 10 days in office. Uh, but he, he actually convinced them not to, to pursue it because it's stupid to say that the lowest fee product is the best is insane. That just meant that everyone had to put money in ETFs. Oh, who are the big ETF companies? BlackRock and Vanguard. Oh, who wrote the legislation? BlackRock and Vanguard. So is BlackRock, can they say we're not going to invest in Chinese companies? No, because they want to get all of that wealth that's being created in China they want to manage some of it in the equivalent of 401ks. Surprise, surprise. So do I think they are purely economic actors? Yep. Do I actually like economic actors? Yes. Do I think that we collectively need to fight back against China's policies? Yep. How do you fight back? Economically, right? If we all did stop buying Tencent, it actually would matter, right? And so I, I'd say I, I, have, I have mixed emotions on this. I think it's a really important point. I think it's a really important topic. I don't think, I think George is mostly right, but as usual, he goes way out on that extreme. And part of that is because it's theater. Part of it is, you know, we're trying to, uh, elicit strong emotion, emotions because when you when you elicit strong emotions, sometimes you get bad decisions. And if you're in a war, you want the other person to make bad decisions, so you bait them. Um, so anyway, 
We could we could do a whole session on this. I was going to say we could. I know, me too. Uh, but unfortunately, we're running low on time, so we got to wrap. I know. There. I know. I know. Um, Mark, this has been another great. Well, until until we meet again a week from now. This is fun. I really, really enjoy this. Me too. And uh, thanks for hosting. Yeah, and... it's a blast. All right. I'll see you same time next week. Cheers, my friend. Yep. Enjoy the concert <laughs> and uh, and have a lot of fun. I will. Thanks, man. Bye. <laughs>